Well, good morning, beloved. If you don't know me, my name is Alan Reeb. I'm an elder here at Restoration Road. And it is, again, a distinct pleasure to come before you and open the word of life for us. It's kind of been an exciting couple of weeks to live in Snohomish with the midterm elections and a windstorm that has ravished our county and a plane crash just outside of town this last weekend. It's been a lot to take in and to keep track of. Um, but I'm glad you're here this morning because often, if you're like me, we need a time to refocus our attention on things that are truly important, things that truly matter, things that are of eternal consequence. And that is what I hope I will be leading us in this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles, and I hope you brought your Bibles with you, to Hebrews chapter 3. We will be looking at the whole chapter this day. I know Pastor Nate last week did a masterful job of looking at the first six verses, and I am certainly not going to repeat what he had to share with us, uh, other than to draw your attention to a few important remarks. But I would just like to reread those six verses and then continue on through the rest of the chapter, because as you'll see, it really is a whole section of thought that can't be rightly divided up into smaller sections. So I want to look at that whole section, um, and then we will divide it up and look at its parts. So read along with me, please. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So you see that they were unable to enter 
because of unbelief. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? <clears throat> there's a, like Nate said last week, even in the first verse, there is multiple weeks of expository preaching. And I would welcome you to ponder and think and reread and go through these verses because we, in, by nature of our limited time and, uh, and organization, we, we have selected this week to cover a pretty large section of this book. Um, and as you have noticed, it is probably a, a section that could do with some explaining. And hopefully, I will explain it this morning. But there's a lot of good, good information here um, in this section. When I was back in high school, which was a very long time ago, in English literature class, I remember distinctly our English lit teacher doing a section on the work of William Shakespeare. And she told us that his works can basically, basically be divided into two general categories, comedies and tragedies, or as some like to call it, boring and even more boring. And then she went on to explain that not that his comedies were funny, but they were distinct from the tragedies because a tragedy in Shakespeare's mind often had an unresolved plot. The bad guy got away with his evil deeds and he wasn't brought to justice or the lovers ended up separated or dying or some other tragedy that was developed within his book, take Romeo and Juliet, the Merchant of Venice, Hamlet, it ended on a very downbeat note. There wasn't much to rejoice about. There wasn't much to be happy about. The comedies, on the other hand, think Midsummer Night's Dream or the Taming of the Shrew, they ended on an upbeat note. The lovers ended up in love forever, or the plot was, was resolved with the bad guy getting just due, or some other situation that he was so masterful at resolving itself. Herein lies a huge difference for our perspective between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our Old Testament is much like one of Shakespeare's tragedies. It ends without much resolution. It ends without really justice being served. It points to resolution. It has hints of good news, but it doesn't end there. It kind of ends on a sour note. The New Testament comes along, and it's much like one of Shakespeare's comedies. It is the fulfillment of the things in the Old Testament that weren't resolved. Justice is served. God's anger is appeased and satisfied. And we have good news to proclaim, good news to embrace, good news to understand. The book of Hebrews is an important, crucial book that helps to understand the Old Testament in light of the new. It takes the tragedy of the unresolved issues, sin, and it resolves them for us. It fully satisfies them in God's ideal justice world. My outline for this morning, to give you just an outline of where we're going, 
I've entitled, entitled this section of Hebrews, A Warning from the Wilderness. One of the reasons that many preachers and theologians don't like the book of Hebrews, one, it's that it's hard to understand, but it's punctuated with numerous warnings. And these stand out, and people like, I want to stay away from those. They're, that's not good news. That's not easy to understand. That's harsh, what he has to say about these warning passages. And they're throughout the book of Hebrews, and we've had one already in chapter 2, and here's a second one in chapter 3, and there'll be more. So I hope to be able to unlock some of the mystery behind them and look at see to what he is saying. So we're going to look, first of all, at verses 7 through 11. And the author of Hebrews gives us a mindset to avoid. What is that mindset? Rebellion. And he goes back again, as he often does, to illustrate his point from an Old Testament story that his audience was so very well familiar with. And his point is there's something here to avoid, and that is rebellion. And then in verses 12 and 14, he has a section where he's going to talk about a king to acknowledge. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. After the failure in the wilderness, I have to enlighten you. I have to refresh your memory. I have to reinforce something that you're, again, familiar with, and that is there's a king I want you to acknowledge, and that is Jesus Christ. And then again in verses 15 through 19, he's going to talk about a sin to abandon. What is that sin to abandon? Unbelief. Unbelief. I hope you noticed in reading the whole chapter 3 that there's some ideas that are repeated. There are some sections that seem to be repeated. And there is indeed, in fact, parallelism going on here. The reason I went back to the first six verses of chapter 3 was because some of the things in those verses are again repeated in verses 12, 13, and 14. And then when Paul, not Paul, the author of Hebrews talks about the rebellion in the wilderness in verses 7 through 11, he then repeats that or expands upon that idea in verses 15 through 19. So we have this back and forth, this back and forth. The author talks about the glory and the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus. Then he goes to the wilderness and talks about rebellion. Then he brings back the thought of Jesus again and our partnership with him. And he goes back to the sin of unbelief in keeping the people of Israel out of the promised land and away from God's rest. We see this structure. If you're familiar with Pauline literature the letters in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote, you'll be familiar with his structure. His is very different than this. Paul likes to deal with theology. He's a theologian's heart. Like the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters is pure theology. There's not one action verb used in the first 11 chapters. Then he comes to chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And the rest of his epistle is all action. It's all response to the theology. The same is done in, in Galatians and Ephesians. He starts with theology and then he applies it. This is how we are to behave in light of the theology. Hebrews 
is a little bit different. That's one of the main reasons why I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews puts action responses throughout this theological narrative. He'll talk about theological events and important things in theology, and then he'll say, this is how you apply it. This is how you are to react to it. This is how you are to behave in light of what I have just said. So just to bring us up to speed and refresh your memory, in chapter 1, Pastor Mike did a beautiful job of showing the Christology. The author goes right to the person and nature of Jesus Christ and shows his divinity, that he was the God-man, that he came sent by his heavenly Father as a more important prophet. He was greater than the angels, greater than the revelation that had preceded him. He was God in flesh to come and live among his people and deliver a very, very important message. Then he comes to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, he says, because of that fact, we need to pay close attention. We need to wake up. We need to hear this message. Don't be idle. Don't be passive. We, can't, we don't have the availability to us to just be complacent. And so he then makes a, an impassioned plea for paying attention to this great salvation that has been delivered to us. And then in the remainder of chapter 2, he talks about the humanity of Christ, the fact that he died. Yes, God in chapter 1, God incarnate in flesh, but in chapter 2, he died. The Hebrews were very familiar with death. The sacrificial system was very, very predominant in their mind. And so the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was our high priest, and not only was he the officiating high priest, he himself became our sacrifice. Through the glorious death that he died, he tasted death for everyone. This is incredible news. This was marvelous news. He's not only greater than angels, greater than all the previous prophets, he now has come and as a high priest and apostle has sacrificed himself to become the sacrificial lamb as they were again very familiar with on the Day of Atonement. Jesus was now embodying that sacrifice and dying his death for everyone he tasted death. Then he comes to chapter 3 and again he reminds us, Brethren who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. This is the key to unlocking the book of Hebrews, I'm convinced. What is the argument? That's one of the jobs as a Bible student. What is the purpose that the author wrote a certain piece of work in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Bible? What is, his, what is his goals? What is his objectives? What is he trying to accomplish? Sometimes he tells us, not always. And here the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't come right out and say it, but I think he makes it pretty obvious because he keeps admonishing his audience, consider Jesus as the great high priest and apostle of our high calling so that you will not drift away, so that you won't fall back that you'll hold fast to your confession, that you remain consistent, that you'll hold on 
in spite of all that's happening around you, hold on to Jesus because he's the key for your ability to hold fast in the Christian life and to make it a consistent, lifelong effort. The writer of Hebrews is seen to have an incredible theological mind. He's an incredible theologian, precise in the words that he has chosen to use. But he has a heart of compassion as a pastor, looking out for the sheep under his care, caring for them, admonishing them, encouraging them to pursue godly living through Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he makes a profound statement that his audience would immediately recognize. God spoke. God spoke. I don't know if it's a current commercial, but I remember a very effective commercial a while back by E.F. Hutton, I believe. The scene was a busy restaurant. All the tables were full of patrons. The wait staff was busy serving the tables, and the camera zoomed in on one particular table um, of, of a group of men that were enjoying lunch together, and the conversation went to the investments that they had. And they started gleaming each other for hints of, of what might be a good investment, of what's going to pay off and what's going to make me some money. And then one of them says, well... My broker, E.F. Hutton, says, and the whole restaurant goes deathly quiet, and everybody leans over to hear this piece of advice. Very effective. That's what the Jewish mind responds to when they hear God spoke. <gasps> God spoke? Well, it's important to know what he said. Why? We are the chosen people. We are the instrument that he is using to reveal himself and to proclaim good news to the world. When God speaks, they listen. And it was as if everyone wants to lean in to hear. Oh, that our hearts would be so attuned to God's word, that we would be so responsive when we recognize God is saying something. God has something to, important to say. Oh, that we would respond like that commercial and lean in with great inquisitivity. What is he going to say? What does he have to say? He says in chapter 1, God spoke through Jesus. God spoke through Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, pay attention. Pay attention. Don't drift away. Don't lose grip. Hold fast. And then we come to chapter 3. And again, the same admonition. Consider, take note of Jesus. Nate did this last week. And he brings up the preposterous notion that Jesus is greater than Moses. The Jews... And rightly so, held Moses in high esteem. No greater prophet had ever existed in Israel than Moses. And for the writer to say, Jesus is better, more important than Moses, it got their attention. It got their attention. So then, after again steering their attention toward Jesus and considering Jesus, 
the writer goes back to a very familiar time in Jewish history and brings up a story that, again, his audience was very familiar with. Where I think he's going here is he's going to explain two huge roadblocks, two huge bumps in the road that will derail his intention for his audience to hold fast and remain consistent and true in their walk with God. Two things that might get in the way, and we need to pay attention to those two things. And the first one he illustrates by going back to the wandering of, of the children of Israel across the Sinai Desert. You'll remember when Moses led them out of Egypt, he performed great miracles in front of Pharaoh and the whole Egyptian army and led the nation of Israel to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. They, were, they crossed on dry land. The sea enfolded the Egyptian army. They came to Mount Sinai where God delivered the the law, the Decalogue to Moses written on tablets and there were problems, there were struggles, but their pilgrimage continued across the Sinai Desert. As they wandered, God provided food for them, God provided water for them, God provided direction with a cloud by day. It shaded them as they crossed the hot desert and led them the way that they should go and protected them at night with a pillar of fire. The desert gets cold at night, and the fire would warm them and keep them comfortable and, again, revealed God's presence. And they wandered, and they came to the Jordan River at Kadesh Barnea. And you remember what Moses did. He selected 12 men, and he sent them as spies into the land to scope it out, to see what this promised land was all about. And they spent a deal of time in amongst the villages and surveying the land. And they came back and they made a report to Moses and the people. And the report was, yes, it's true. This is a land indeed flowing with milk and honey. The fields are fertile. The vineyards are plentiful. The orchards are ripe. The land is plentiful. There's water. There's fields for livestock. It's a wonderful court. Coming across the desert, this report must have sounded incredible. But, they said, there's giants in the land. There are fortified cities. They will squash us like bugs. But Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the 12 that said, yes, that report is true, but we've been promised this land, people. We own this land as our inheritance. Let's go. No. The people said no. Rebellion is a funny thing sometimes, isn't it? I've got a six-year-old granddaughter who often will go sideways and just oppose everything. Journey, do you want to go out for ice cream? No, I don't want to go out for ice cream. Well, how about frozen yogurt? No, I don't want that either. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Rebellion in its heart of hearts often makes no rational sense. 
children of Israel, the promised land lies on the other side of that river. Let's go. God has promised it to us. No, we don't want to go. We would rather wander around a bunch of rocks for 40 years. But the land is flowing with milk and honey. The orchards are plentiful and the vineyards are full. Let's go take it. No, we would rather wander and die in the wilderness. Rebellion doesn't make rational sense. And God's anger burned and they were, they forfeited. That generation forfeited their time and they wandered for 40 years. Moses did a survey, a census coming out of Egypt and he counted 603,800 men in the group. Doing a quick math count, if that accounted for half of the adult population, assuming that there was an equal number of adult women, not counting children, that meant about 1.2 million people came out of Egypt and then were left to wander around the desert for 40 years. God's judgment said that this generation will not enter the promised land. Anyone under 20 years old was spared that decree, but every adult over 20 years old died in the wilderness. For 40 years, I just did, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but assuming there was 1.2 million people that wandered the wilderness for 40 years, do you know how many funerals they had every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, they buried, on average, 82 people a day wandering the wilderness. That's a lot of grave digging. That's a lot of funerals. But until that generation was turned over, they could not enter. They came back, and they had a second attempt to go in. And Joshua and Caleb, who were still there, reinforced their faith, and they went across the Jordan and occupied the land. Jump down in chapter 3 to verse 15 through the end of the chapter because this is the parallel section dealing with the wilderness again. And you'll see again that it repeats the same thought. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? In verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therein lies the core of rebellion. Rebellion in and of itself is not the issue. Unbelief was the issue. Unbelief produced rebellion. Un the fruit of unbelief was rebellion. That is the sin that God could not forgive. Unbelief. Unbelief. If you are honest with yourself, and I hope you are, when you and I have moments of rebellion, and we do, what does it stem from? What promise, what idea is producing that rebellion in our lives? It comes back to a failure to believe certain things. Oh, God isn't ultimately good. I don't believe that. Therefore, I have this illness, or my family member has this illness. God doesn't have my best in mind. He's against me. He's angry with me. 
I will rebel. I will be angry. How rational is our rebellion? Honest questions to ask. But he doesn't leave us in this tragic situation. No. There's a comedy coming, a fulfillment, a satisfaction of this dilemma. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Take care, brothers, verse 12, that there lest be any of, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our, conf our confidence firm to the end. Herein lies the key to understanding the salvation that the author of Hebrews has for his audience. How is it that you can hold firm? How is it that you can hold fast? How is it that you can remain confident and steadfast and continue on firm until the end? How is it? What is it that you and I need to grab hold of in order for that to be true into our lives? It is Jesus Christ. It is Christ. It is not your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and put on whatever garment of, of determination that you think you might need to muster to do what you think is necessary to accomplish it. It's not true. Belief is necessary. Belief in Jesus Christ. What has he done? What is he continuing to do? What has he provided for you? This is the picture of the promised land. The promised land here is called my rest. God the Father calls it my rest. Gospel songs kind of talk about Canaan as being a picture of heaven. When they cross, swing low, sweet chariot, I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A band full of angels coming after me. It's, it's viewed sometimes, I think wrongly, as a picture of heaven. If Canaan is a picture of him at heaven. You know, that's where Goliath lived. That's where, Jer that's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. I, I don't think it's a picture of heaven. What I think it is a picture of, of it's God's benevolent gift of grace into the life of the believer who trusts in him through faith. What does he say? It's interesting if you were to do a word search on a little phrase, I will go before you. Throughout the Old Testament, a promise that God gave to Moses, a promise that God gave to Joshua, a God that God pr promised over and over again, I will go before you. What did that mean? I will make the way. I will open the door. I will provide what you need. I will show you the way. I will get you there. I will, I will, I will, I will go before you. Wasn't that true in the promised land? I will send out a pack of hornets before you, and they will drive out from this land the Amorites, the Hittites, and all the Jebusites, and all the termites. They'll all be scattered. Why? I will go before you. There's the picture. I will do this. I will accomplish this. I will give you the grace necessary to do this. I will equip you. It's not your effort. It's not your determination. It's not your firm grit to do it. I've gone back just in the first three chapters of the book of Hebrews, and I want to point out 
a few significant truths that I think we can hang our hat on that will give us encouragement this morning to realize, consider Jesus, brothers and sisters. Consider Jesus, what he has done, who he is, what he continues to do on our behalf to provide, to make that way, to equip, to give us the going before in this life to accomplish what he has for us. In the Old Testament, God spoke in fragments through the prophets over a long period of time. But Jesus was God's full and final revelation. The prophets were speaking on behalf of God, delivering his message. But Jesus was God in flesh that came to be seen and heard as God's exact representative. The Old Testament priests had to continually offer sacrifices for sin. But when Jesus finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of God, showing that this once and for all act never had to be repeated again. God used his angels throughout the Old Testament time to reveal his message, to deliver his decree, and to lead his people. But Jesus is vastly superior to all the angels because he is God's son, heir of God's kingdom, object of angelic worship, and he sits on an eternal throne. The created universe is vast, complex, and overwhelming. But Jesus is the center of the earth and heavens, is the creator of the earth and heavens, and will remain king after these created elements disappear. Angels were and are an ordained part of God's plan to minister his grace and reveal his glory. But Jesus, as God with us, fully showed us the Father, fully brought us grace upon grace, provided an inheritance of salvation to all who believe, and rested at God's right hand. Angels delivered God's message that had the authority to punish anyone who disobeyed its decrees. But Jesus, with greater authority, brought the offer of a grace-filled salvation to all who would hear and believe. Angels are very important created beings who have carried God's message and have been recognized and acknowledged as reliable and authentic messengers. But Jesus, who claimed to be God in flesh, came to us attesting with attesting miracles and signs and wonders and proved his claims by dying and rising again from the dead. The sacrifices that the high priest performed on the Day of Atonement was an important annual event that offered, that covered the sins of the nation to all who believed that that sacrifice was efficacious on their behalf. But Jesus came and died one time, a perfect sinless sacrifice that God the Father accepted and honored as efficacious to forgive sins for all who believe that that death was really their death. The effects of my personal sin and the consequences of the world's corporate sin make my life really difficult at times with illness persecution, suffering of all kinds, injustices, harms and wrongs, addictions, slaveries, murders, assaults and death. But Jesus, 
who was and remains sinless, suffered not because of personal sin, but because of the sin of the world, died a terrible death of torture and persecution to become the trailblazer of our salvation, a pioneer of the new way of life, a new way of relating to God the Father, a new family of brothers and sisters, and an inheritance of hope for eternity. The devil has held people in slavery for centuries, creating bondage to sinful addictions, living life in constant fear and anxiety, and dreading death, not knowing what lies beyond. But Jesus, because he died and rose again, destroyed the power of the devil and destroyed the power the devil has had over people, releasing us from slavery and allowing us to fully worship our Creator now and for eternity. Angels do not need salvation. In fact, they really don't understand it at all. They don't need forgiveness or sanctification or justification. But Jesus came and offers these marvelous gifts to the offspring of Abraham and anyone else who through faith becomes children of God. The high priest needed an animal without blemish or fault to sacrifice and another one just like that to release into the wilderness. This was to show that God the, fire, God the Father requires something perfect to die, to satisfy the penalty for sin, and then to show symbolically that that sin has been removed. But Jesus, the perfect God-man, was and is fully able to justify and sanctify mankind because he became the propitiation that is, the fully accepted sacrifice for sin, and to this day remains in bodily form to constantly and continually make intercession on behalf of his followers and to equip them with everything necessary to live now victoriously, steadfast, always bringing glory to God. Will you consider Jesus this morning? Will you look to him when your resources have run out? When you recognize rebellion swelling up in your heart that really can't be explained. It has no logical basis. But believe in Jesus who can forgive and justify and sanctify and establish you and equip you with what is necessary to live the Christian life. Consider him. The sin of unbelief is probably what I would call the unpardonable sin. Theologians have debated, well, what is that unpardonable sin that is talked about in Scripture? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. God can't get around that. He can't bypass that. He can't supersede that. That's what's necessary. You might be saying this morning, well, I know this is a Reformed church, and a Reformed church you know, has these ideas about predestination and calling and funny things like that. I don't fully understand it. And you might be saying, well, what if I'm not one of the called ones? 
What if I'm not capable of believing? If that's what's the requirement, if that's what's necessary, what if I'm not one of the called? What, where does that leave me? Good question to ask. Very good question. What Reformed theologians call the order of salvation goes something like this. That regeneration of our spirit because of our sin and our fallenness, our spirits, our minds, our souls need to be regenerated before faith can be expressed. That is a work of God and God alone. He regenerates us and gives us the faith necessary. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of works. It is a gift of God. It is a gift. Well, you're saying, what if I'm not one of the gifted ones? What if I'm not in that camp? Or if, what if I'm not one of the chosen, one of the elect? I'm left to wander in the wilderness and perish. I have good news for you today. I have great news for you today. I have incredible news for you today. If you believe this morning, you're one of the elect. If you believe in Jesus Christ, these marvelous things that I've said, and accept his forgiveness for your sin, which alienates you from a holy God and justifies you before him, if you believe that his death on the cross was a satisfaction for your sin, you are an elect. You are saved. You are in God's family. You are heirs of the kingdom and brothers with Christ and partners with him. It doesn't make you supersede God's ability. It confirms God's election of you. We don't have the power to twist God's hands. But by believing, you acknowledge that he has given me salvation. He has made me one of his own. It's confounding. It's perplexing. Belief. Believe. Believe this morning in the King of Kings. Phil Wickman wrote a very interesting song called His Name is Jesus that I love. He says, the king is in the room. Come and see the scars of love upon his hands. The king is in the room. We'll watch the darkness flee at his command. Who is this king? Who is this king? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, light of the world. There is freedom in his name, awesome in power, reigning forever, light of the world. There's freedom in his name. There's never been a love so great. He died so that we could live. Then he rose up from the grave. Name another king like this. Now all authority forever belongs to him. He reigns in victory. Name another king like this. And there's never been a love so great. He died so that we could live. Then he rose up from the grave. Name another king like this. Now all authority forever belongs to him. He reigns in victory. Name another king like this. Name another king like this. There is a king to acknowledge. There is a sin to avoid. And there is a mindset to abandon. My prayer for us that we will embrace, acknowledge, follow, love, and be equipped by our king. That is the key 
to the life of a believer. Pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, you have gone before us. You have made the way. You have opened the door. You have scattered our enemies. You have departed the sea. All we need to do is follow. Believe in your goodness. Believe in your grace. Believe in your Son. Consider Jesus. And we will be equipped to do what you have asked us to do. Jesus, our brother, our partner, you are beautiful. You are good. You are great. There is no other king like you to answer that question. There is no other king like you. We acknowledge you this morning. We embrace you this morning as our only hope. We follow you as our only source of life for now and eternity. We are grateful to be in your family. It's in your name I pray. Amen.